This is a special episode of the Russell Moore Show today, reflecting on the death this week of my friend Tim Keller, who I believe to be the most significant American evangelist since uh, Billy Graham. And I say evangelist uh, specifically, and I'll, I'll explain a little bit more of what I mean by that in a few minutes. We're going to have uh, some segments of conversations with Tim over the past couple of years, uh, dealing with questions of forgiveness. How do I forgive someone who has hurt me? How do I find forgiveness for myself? As well as a conversation about resurrection. How can one face death and how can one face the death of people that one loves? Very, very relevant questions today. Still kind of raw, the thought of losing Tim Keller. I told someone today I've spent much of the past few days telling stories with other people who likewise have had the same kinds of uh, stories or similar stories with Tim of a life that is well-lived and a life whose legacy will continue on. A few things, though, before we actually get to the conversations with Tim. I've been thinking about over the past several days as to unique aspects of Tim Keller that I think about maybe first when I think about him. And the first one is what I mentioned a few minutes ago, and that's evangelism. And I say that because I had so many moments with Tim with unbelievers. We would be in, in many situations where we were talking together with atheists or agnostics or people of other world religions, some of them kind of curious about Christianity. There was one uh, atheist I remember saying to Tim and to me, I, I feel as though I'm colorblind and, and you all can see color. And so it's like you can see a whole spectrum that I can't see when it comes to faith. But some of them who were ridiculing and, and hostile of Christianity as well. And I could watch Tim with people all along that spectrum. And I remember one night saying to my wife, it's like if you're in a country where they've never heard of basketball and Michael Jordan is playing a game with them. And you're stepping back and you're saying, I see what it is that he's doing and how amazing it is that he's doing what he's doing. I don't think they see it. He could come in and what he would do is exactly what he taught us all to do using those categories of common grace, point of connection, and antithesis, point of contradiction. So he would, he would come in and he would find areas where someone speaking actually did know more than he or she was saying. You actually do have a category for a kind of objective morality. And sometimes the sign of the contradiction and the sign of the connection were together. So I remember one time with an atheist who was saying, you know, there's no objective morality. There's simply what is best for the flourishing of the species using evolutionary categories. And Tim came in and said, human slavery. And we spent the next half hour talking about on what basis human slavery can be wrong. And Tim showing, you actually do have a sense where this is objectively morally wrong. It's not just that it hinders flourishing of the species. 
species can go along just fine. It's that there's something objective about human dignity and there's something objective about human morality. I had him one time as a guest lecturer with me in a class I was teaching the Institute of Politics at University of Chicago, where almost none of the students had any connection to Christians at all, much less Christians themselves. And uh, many of them never heard of Tim Keller. And he came with me one day for class and the, the students there, I think some of them were, why are we talking to some pastor from New York? Someone in the program said they have these really, really high cynicism sorts of detectors. They, they, they detect nonsense really easily. He used a more colorful word, word the nonsense. But they have, they have very good nonsense detectors. And he said it was almost as though three minutes into it, those detectors, you could hear them starting to come down because he, he made this uh, connection with them. I also think about something I don't think a lot of people pay much attention to when they think of Tim Keller, and that is his empathy and his ability to see into the heart. I've seen him showing unbelievable kindness and empathy for many people, including for myself. So he was able to, to see that and to, to look into those situations and to have this kind of penetrating into the situation, but not to critique in order to heal. I remember he would do this a lot. He had a lot of sympathy and empathy for his haters. One time we were talking about some really egregious Theobro, as they call them. I don't even remember what it was in, in this case. Somebody who was attacking Tim, particularly at that moment, really uh, hard. And he and I tended to get attacked by the same people. I just never paid attention to it and never really looked at it. He usually did. But I said something about how just depraved uh, this was. And he said, well, look, this is somebody who is probably in a great deal of pain. And it's probably somebody who doesn't have much of a sense of significance. One of the ways that people find significance when they can't find it is by finding somebody they believe to be significant and attacking them. Because if they're interacting with them, then, and especially if they're responded to by them, it can give them a, a sense of relief of the pain. So let's, let's have compassion here. And I thought about that even, even over the past couple of days. I mean, the amazing thing is to look around and see a kind of all across the usual sorts of boundaries, great deal of respect and love uh, for Tim pouring out after his death. So that voice just continues in my mind. I think about just personally the way that the words of counsel that he would give carried so much weight. And they were often in the middle of situations where he was facing far worse situations. I mean, as recently as just within the past couple weeks in which we're texting back and forth about a situation that I was dealing with, which is nothing really minor compared to pancreatic cancer. But he wanted to check on it. 
and to pray and to look into it. He is the reason why in 2017, I stayed as president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, the Southern Baptist Convention. After all of the Trump controversy and the way that some people were acting, I really wanted to walk away. And (laughs) I was actually right at the verge of quitting. And Tim called and I told him that. And he said, now let's just wait a minute. Let's make a list of all of the people who are giving you these problems who are under the age of 40. And I said, none of them, none of them. I said, there's hardly any of them under the age of 65. He said, okay, well then you don't have an immediate crisis. You have a transition period to go through. And I held on to that and I stayed. He also was the one who convinced me to leave. In 2020, we would be talking about this, 2020, 2021. And I was talking to him and a group of others. And the main thing was, I I don't know if I should leave because I don't want to leave and then look back and say, I regret it. I shouldn't have done it. And I remember Tim's eyebrow just went up. And he said, really, Russell, of all of the possible responses that somebody might have, for your moving on to a different place. Do you really think that any one of them will be, why so soon? <laughs> and that, that really is what made the decision for me because, because I put so much weight in him spiritually in terms of wisdom. And one of the things that I'm really going to miss, there's so much I'm gonna miss about Tim Keller, both as a world figure, an evangelical leader, but as a friend. One of the things I'm really going to miss, those conversations, usually on the phone, where we would talk about every sort of thing imaginable in evangelical life. And the way that he was always shot through with gratitude. And I could see it in so many different ways. I mean, he said to me one time, I felt so humiliated. He called to check on me about some really hard situation that I was going through. We we talked for an hour about that, an hour and a half. And at the end of it, I said, Tim, I, I am really embarrassed that we've sat here and talked about this when you are facing pancreatic cancer. And he said, oh, you know what? He said, I'm in my 70s. All of my children are Christians. I know and love my grandchildren. My wife loves me and I love her. My kids love me and I love them. My grandkids love me and I love them. What do I have to complain about? And that just really stuck with me. And that was especially true when he was talking about Jesus. Tim was when he came to Christ, a grown man. And it was uh, through a campus ministry. He really could contrast the difference between his background as an unbeliever in an unbelieving context to someone who had come to know Christ. He could see the before and after really, really clearly and had this ongoing sense of gratitude that Jesus would meet him. And I think that's why he was willing to bear patiently with people 
with busy New Yorkers, with uh, people who thought they were too sophisticated for religion, with people who thought they were too bad off for the gospel, with those who were in ministry who were on the verge of quitting. He bore with and had great patience with all of us. And I think it's because he was grateful. And I'm grateful for him. So this first segment is about forgiveness and about how to seek it and how to find it. And they're expecting that what it looks like to really forgive is to be in this sort of tranquility. Right. But that's not the case, is it? No. um, It... Forgiveness is both a process and and a a promise, and I think you have to make the promise for the process to work. If you mm. uh, that forgiveness, another way to put it, I think I got this from David Pallison. Our uh, forgiveness is granted before it's felt. If you wait mm. to feel it before you grant it, you'll wait forever. Because most people think if I'm still angry, I haven't forgiven. Or I can't yeah. forgive until I stop, until the anger goes away. He would say, it's granted before it's felt. Because what is it? what does it mean to grant forgiveness? Well, first of all, is to remember that you're a sinner. And then secondly, to make a commitment. Not, and this is a little bit of a simplification. Not to, not to throw this thing back up into the perpetrator's face. Not to throw it up to other people so that they will ruin his reputation. And not to keep bringing it up to yourself. So, for example, let me let me really get this down to earth here. Um, if my wife, on a, 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 a some day, she loses her temper with me and she says, "You big blue turnip," and then later she comes back and says, "You know, I should never have done that. I'm very sorry. Would you forgive me for calling you a blue turnip?" And I say, "I forgive you, honey." But two months later, I'm very angry with her, and I say, "And you called me a blue turnip." Now, what I've done there is I've failed to forgive. Now, I, I'm no. being a little trivial just because I, you know, I'm just a little levity here. But yeah. the point is, yeah. if, I for, if I have promised to forgive her, that means I don't throw it back up to in her face. It means I also don't go telling other people, did you know she called me? And then I also don't keep bringing it up to myself. And if you, uh, that takes time, and, it's, it, and you do it imperfectly. But if you're trying to do that, slowly but surely, you start to feel it. You know, you start to feel, you, you have to start by framing it, reminding yourself that, look, I'm a sinner too, and I live by God's forgiveness, and Christ did not take vengeance on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you start with that, and then you make this commitment, and then you, uh, slowly you start to feel it. So, yeah, you have to feel, it. and in the process, even if you still feel angry, I would say, but if you've made that commitment, you have forgiven. What about the opposite situation? I think about all the time something you have probably long ago forgotten uh, because it was uh, it was probably just a, a, an incidental thing for you, but it meant a lot to me. We were having a conversation after I'd gone through some stuff and you said, uh, be sure that you deal with your anger. And I said to you, well, I'm not angry. I'm really not. I'm not uh, angry. I don't have any bitterness toward anybody. And what you said was, well, what if you're just numb? What if you've just sort of redirected that anger and you're not paying attention to it? And what if it's just politeness 
rather than than dealing with the the anger. Well, how does somebody know if they've just sort of gone numb? Because I think a lot of people that happens. It's just that they they maybe it seems like they've forgiven, but it's just because they just don't care anymore. Well, yeah. Uh, by the way, you know the only reason I'm, I'm interested that you remember that. The only reason I would have had the insight to do that is because Russell, I do that. <laughs> I I do it. It. it um, I wonder whether it's a bit of a male thing. Because mm, at least yeah. in my marriage, uh, Kathy's often said, look, you know what? You are still angry at me about this. Yeah. And I look at it and I realize that what I, the way I dealt with it was by somehow, I really, I don't know, you know, I hate to get it. I'm not being Freudian here. Yeah, I really pushed it down, really repressed it. Mm-hmm. Because I don't like to think of myself as an angry person. Yeah. So um, in some ways, I'm numb because I numbed myself because if I felt pain all the time, then I would say, oh, I'm an angry person. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I just don't like to think of myself that way. So I just found a way of, of uh, hiding it from myself. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, Kathy thinks, I mean, I don't want to get into gender stereotypes, but there's something, you know, stereotypes are always uh, based on some characteristics. And in my case, I think Kathy would say she's always quite aware she's mad mm. or not. And over the years, she said, you know, tomorrow you'll tell me if you're mad or not, because you'll get down and you'll pray and you've gotten really good over the years, even for a guy to say, you know, I really was pretty mad at you yesterday. So maybe you won't be, maybe you're not, but I think you are. And I mm. want to talk about it tomorrow. That's it. This, mm. this is the great thing about, you know, 45, 50 years of marriage is you yeah. really get to know each other. And she'll just say, you know what? I, I don't think you even know that you're down, you're up, you're unhappy, and it's probably because you're mad, and you probably think you're mad at me, and I don't think you know it yet, but I think I know you enough to know that after prayer tomorrow you'll be able to tell me, and the and next day I yeah, so yeah, that's how that works. You talked about uh, disintegration and disintegration of a person, disintegration of a relationship. We also see disintegration of communities. Um, I'm thinking about mm. Wendell Berry in his uh, new book uh, was talking about the necessity of prepaid forgiveness is what he uh, called it in a, in a small rural community. He says you need to have prepaid forgiveness there like a fire extinguisher where Mm -hmm. you realize we're going to need each other and we need to bear with each other. And he says, a society without that soon starts talking about civil war or holy war. Uh, Is he right about that? Yes. First of all, what's interesting, it's interesting that Wendell Berry talks about the small town, basically, or the the smaller community. Uh, It is not crazy, even though we we like it and we can make jokes about it, you notice how many BBC murder mysteries are in little in small towns. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There are little English villages, and there's you know at the Our end church. of them, yeah, three or four, yeah. And the answer is that that um, unless you forgive, unless you are constantly repairing your relationships and being honest about it, um, you are going to uh, you, since you need each other, the relationships are going to break down. And then you're going to have that. So he's right. But it's also true in, uh, in the macro. I mean, Miroslav Volf's great book, Exclusion and Embrace, which is far more intelligent than my book, but also 
way less accessible because he wrote it as a philosopher, theologian. But he was writing as a Croatian back in the early 90s, saying, how do we Croatians look at the Serbians for what they're mm. doing to us? And um, he's also talking about a breakdown of, of human community. And, and he talks about embrace. It's, it's, I, I don't, don't feel like I've got the uh, ability to summarize it very well because it's a really great book. But he talks about embrace, meaning that as a Croatian, he has to at least open his arms towards Serbians, meaning make it possible for there to be some kind of forgiveness and reconciliation. He's got that great line I use in the book where, where Wolf says, forgiveness flounders when I exclude the perpetrator from the community of humans and mm. I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Mm. So when I stop thinking of them as an equal human being, you know, but as a sort of a lower life than me, and if I stop thinking of myself as a sinner, then human community just falls apart. And I think that's actually part of what maybe, maybe Wendell Berry's talking about with prepay, is yeah. that you've got to have that attitude of saying, these other people are human beings like me. They're equally, they're, I should never look down at any other race or any other class or any other person, that they're low life. And I need to never forget that I'm also a sinner. So uh, small communities break down, big communities break down, um, you know, urban, urban communities break down without forgiveness. Yeah. Jesus is the only God that can actually forgive you. Anything else you live for will just punish you. That's one approach. Another approach that I might want to look at is that they understand only half of the gospel, which is God, my, my, my sin is imputed to, to Jesus, but not the other half, which is that Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us. They, they, if you don't understand both of those things, then there's a sense in which I, 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 I ask for forgiveness, but now it's up to me to kind of live a good life and look, I blew it again. It's kind of a half gospel. Mm -hmm. uh, and therefore, they always feel like, well, I, yeah, I, I know I just asked for forgiveness, but boy, you know, I'm going to do something else. I did something else. And not to say, yeah, but in Christ, God looks at you and sees you as an absolute beauty. A lot of people just don't understand that half of the gospel. And that's another thing I would go to. Finally, and this might have been true of the young Russell Moore, is that when people say you're saved by faith, not by your works, sometimes people think that means I'm saved by having enough faith. So the faith ends up becoming a kind of work. Yeah. And so what you really say is, I, you have to remember, it's not the faith that saves you, it's the object of the faith that saves you. See? So I, what I, the illustration I like to say is, if I walk out on five inches of ice, trusting myself to the ice, and I say, oh, I don't know, I think I'm going to fall through, I'm going to fall through, but it's five inches thick, it'll be fine. You're trusting yourself to the ice, and even if you have weak faith in the ice, the ice will save you. Hmm. On the other hand, if you walk out on a half an inch of ice, and you say, I know this will save me, so you're filled with faith, it doesn't matter. The object cannot hold you yeah. up. Okay, so the point is, it's not it's not the, the faith, how, how much faith you have in the object that saves you. It's whether you have faith in the right object. Even weak faith in, in the right object will save you. And so what I often try to say is, be careful that you don't think that the faith is the thing that saves you. Mm. So those are three different avenues. You know, looking at the imputation of Christ's righteousness, 
making sure you understand that faith, faith is the instrument that receives the salvation, not the thing that actually merits it. And also just going back to seeing whether or not there's an idol in your life that's punishing you um, because uh, idols can never forgive you. The next segment is a conversation that we had about resurrection and about life and death. It's amazing to me to see how these two segments are held together because they're really about the same thing. What is that cry for forgiveness really about? It's about the fear of being shut out, the fear of a broken relationship to one another and to God. And how could that ever be reconciled? And how could that ever be held together? And the question of death is really the same question. The relationships that I have with friends and family and loved ones, are they just for a moment? Or are they really about something that transcends this little vapor of life? And how can I have a relationship with God as sinful and rebellious and constantly failing as I am and constantly falling down in terms of performance. How can I really, when I look into death, not respond to it with fear and loathing, but instead as a step toward resurrection? And Tim, as he's talking about this, somebody already grappling with pancreatic cancer, he knew that he was going to die of this. He, he knew. He knew that there were actions that could be taken to lengthen it, his time out. And uh, he said to me in one of our last conversations, because another friend of ours, Francis Collins, had done a lot of connecting him with the right people to, to treat him. And he said, I know that I would not have had the past couple years if it had not been for Francis. I know that. God worked through Francis to get this to me. He said, I also know that pancreatic cancer is, is something that can be held back, but it's not something that's going to go away. So even as he's talking about this, he knows that it is not long. Basically, my wife and I, Kathy and I, recognize the fact that we, we set our, we rested so much of our joy in uh, pretty material things, and they were fairly different. I tended to, uh, in some ways, we were a little bit, a little bit like gender stereotypes here. We played into the gender stereotypes a little bit. Um, I was, uh, I really did rest in uh, ministry uh, accomplishments. Maybe a better word would be uh, uh, certain 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 thing new institutions getting started new organizations new I, i'm a starter i like that and i would just find that that's what made life meaningful my wife actually found a lot of uh different places we lived uh uh there were certain places we especially as we got older we went to for certain weeks of every year that were extraordinarily important to her and also certain aspects of the actual physical environment we were in uh, sights and sounds and things that we could do, we, and we realized that when the when the cancer uh, diagnosis came, that uh, these things were ta being taken away from us. Not only on my side, 
uh, I can read and write and do things, and I can actually talk on podcasts like this, but it's not the same thing as starting a church or starting I can't. I can't do those things in a way, I, and I shouldn't actually now. Uh, Kathy also realized that we had to sort of die to uh, the possibility of ever going to some of the places that we have gone to every year for many years, and a place where she would get respite, where she would feel like she was getting her her soul renewed. And we realized it was not God, it was God's gifts that we were really looking to. And that when you make, when you try to make God's gifts into God, you actually don't get as much out of them. We realized in some ways we were never really satisfied by them. And when we, we said we died to all that last summer when we first heard about the, the cancer, we sort of died to that. We, we said we may never see these things again. And we started to go really after, after God in prayer. We came to realize we actually did enjoy what we were getting. Uh, a, a lovely day. We, I do see water here. In other words, there's many things about where we live that are lovely. And we realized we were enjoying life more than we had before. Now, what theologically, what Augustine means by that is re, you, you're, you reorder your loves. And mm-hmm. what Augustine would say, contrary to the Buddhist or the Stoic, which says you detach your heart from these things so they won't hurt you when you lose them. Mm-hmm. Uh, or the modern person who says you go out and you, you, know, you only go around once in life, so you grab for all the gusto you can. Remember that beer commercial? Are you old enough yeah. to remember that beer commercial? Uh, but what Augustine would say is you don't want to love anything here less because these are God's good gifts. You don't want to harden your heart or detach your heart from them. But your problem is you, you, you need to love God more in relation to them. And if you do that, then if you love first things first, you'll love second things second, third things third. If you, if you love second things first or third things first, you actually uh, lose them. They, they don't give you what you want. So we were, in a way, talking about something very old. It's something that Augustine talked about in the Confessions 1,500 years ago. Uh, and I, but I was able to turn it into an, <laughs> an Atlantic article, basically. Do, how, do you think that, uh, I, I suppose there are probably many people who haven't yet grappled with mortality, but who might wonder, how do I know? If I'm uh, putting second things first, uh, how do I compare love for God, which often seems sort of unquantifiable and intangible, with my loves for these secondary things? Okay, it's a great question. I would say uh, that if you even ask that question, you are making progress. Mm. Uh, If you even doubt yourself, you're making progress. But I do think the reality is that... uh, there are some, some progress that you don't make until something goes wrong in your life. Mm. Uh, I, 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 so there's some of it you can do without trouble and difficulty. Uh, so, for example, I can, uh, uh, if I'm making an idol out of my career, can I really de-idolize it without something going wrong in my career? Uh, can I can I actually say I'm working too hard? I'm too driven. Uh, and maybe you see some other friend of yours life blow up perhaps over the same thing. And you say, I don't want to go there. I see what he did. You know, he started to lie. He started to do things because there was, it was more important that he be successful than that he be honest or be virtuous. I don't want to do that. I'm afraid of that. So is it possible for you to actually de-idolize your career without there being some big problem in your career? Maybe. Give it a shot. 
Because if it's not sufficient, God will give you some hmm. problem that will force it on you. So, well, when when you face those times of sort of forcing it, whether it's mortality or or something else, um, what about regrets? It, it, often people will talk about looking back and seeing regrets, and I'm not talking about sins yeah. here. I'm just talking about. Um, in terms of, say, ministry accomplishments, you look back and you say, I wish I had done this or I wish I had not done that. Uh, do you think that an experience like this clarifies those regrets in a way that it heightens them? Or does it, does it for you anyway, put them into perspective? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think certainly the perspective helped. I mean, I think, I think what I get from C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and people like that is that uh, heaven will make amends for all. That, in other words, there will be no regrets when you get there. Uh, it'll be, uh, or another way to put it is anything that you were actually trying to accomplish or or reach in this life is is uh, is just an echo of what you're going to get in mm-hmm. heaven. You're going to eat it and drink it, and it'll be there. So any there in a sense there should be no regrets because mm-hmm. anything you were hoping to to attain, we, you will yeah. attain. Nevertheless, it's actually a good, I mean, I, Kathy and I both look back, we actually experienced quite a bit of regrets in the situation where in, in light of our mortality, which finally hit us, we look back and see all the, the opportunities and things that we didn't make use of. Now, you, you, you um, console yourself with what I just said, that, you, that heavens will make amends for everything. And, uh, and anything that you didn't accomplish, well, in God's plan, and all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And God's plan, that wasn't something that was part of his plan for mm. human history. Uh, but in the end, everything's going to be made right. Everything's going to be made right. I mean, I'll give you a quick example is that I've, I'll, I'll be real, real uh, granular here, is that I see other people, people my age and people I know pretty well, who have been much better at mentoring a younger generation of leaders than me. Hebrews 2 says that we've been freed from captivity to fear of death, and yet we're all afraid of death. We're not in slavery to fear of death, the, the Bible says. But why would those of us who, who know Christ, who follow Christ, still have this sense of fear when we're thinking about death? Oh, well, okay, there's two, two levels to answer your question. Uh, the first level is, uh, I'll talk about the Christians in a second. I think the first level is the pandemic was a little bit like it broke through the denial. I mean, I'll get to you in one second. I'm going to say all people basically live in denial of their mortality. Mm -hmm. Uh, And by the way, I quoted John Calvin in the uh, in, in the article, which in Atlantic, which hasn't happened recently in the Atlantic, I'm sure, where he actually says, when you see a dead body, you philosophize about mortality, but then you go off and you basically believe in your own perpetuity. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in his little section in the Institutes where he talks about, you know, uh, he has got a section on, which has been pulled out and it's called the little book on the Christian life. Uh, and uh, Calvin actually says that meditating on your future mortality is extremely important and that, that we're all living in denial. And as a result, we make bad choices. We, we don't turn to God in the right way. We actually make bad life choices. It's very, very interesting. Uh, I think the pandemic, in a way, was a cultural moment in which people said, wait a minute, all those dystopian movies 
uh, where uh, a plague comes and wipes out a third of the country of the world, or where somebody hacks the into the uh, infrastructure somehow, and all the ba- you know there's a there's a complete depression because the bank all the the banking uh, system around the world collapses and nobody knows what anybody's worth or somebody sets off a dirty bomb and destroys half of a country. And, uh, wait a minute, those things can actually happen because actually the pandemic is a very, Mm -hmm. as you know, it's a very close shave. This is nothing compared to what could happen. And we really aren't in very good position to say, Oh, well, okay, we've got things set up, so this isn't going to happen again. Right. We're, nobody's saying that. Uh, and so the, I think, in a way, for the whole world, especially younger people, there's been a cultural um, uh, shattering of your denial about our mortality as a human race, as a civilization, that is very similar to what happens when you're told on May 14, 2020, you know what, you're, you have pancreatic cancer. And most pancreatic cancer people die within a year and a year and a half once they're diagnosed. It's the same thing. So mm-hmm. that's why I said you can, you can uh, talk in, at two levels about mm-hmm. why the pandemic uh, has created a, a, basically an attitude of fear in general out there. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and why, I think a lot of Christians, when they do come up against that sense of fear, wonder, does this mean that I'm inadequate in faith? Shouldn't I, if I know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, shouldn't I have this sense of rushing, rushing onward to, toward heaven without this sense of trepidation? Sure, you should. By the way, if you were, if you act, believed with all your heart, everything you profess with your mouth and your head, you'd be perfect. Just mm-hmm. keep that in mind. In other words, if I, if I fully trusted in Jesus, why would I – mean, what I always thought was fascinating about uh, Martin Luther's uh, exposition of the Ten Commandments, Luther says you never break Commandments 2 through 10 without first breaking Commandment 1. Mm-hmm. What he means is, he says, you would not ever lie unless you were making something a, more of a God than Jesus at the moment. Mm-hmm. So I lie because, oh, you know what? If I lie here, I could make a million dollars. Okay, well, then money is your true God, your yeah. true security, your true success. And that means you're breaking commandment one, which is have no other gods before me. Um, and the reason you break commandment one all the time is because the, act- the fact is the love of God is not as real to my heart. And it's not as real to my, my faith is, is weak. My, the love of God is not as real to my heart as the love of popularity mm. or the love of being considered a successful person. And so if I really did believe the things I profess, that I'm going to die and that I'm going to be resurrected and that uh, Jesus' love is what matters and all that, I'd be perfect mm. and you'd be perfect. Mm-hmm. You would never sin. You would have any reason to sin. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, of course, of course you should. I also said, if, of course, you, sh- you, should, you should believe this, <laughs> but we don't. And that God continues to work with uh, very broken people and people that need grace every day, every minute, every second. I do think that when people um, are finding that their experience of the resurrected life <laughs> is not very strong in them, uh, in a way, Russ, when I was told I had pancreatic cancer, I would say, I did feel a certain wavering in my faith. Why wouldn't I? Mm-hmm. And at that point, I did go back to the to to the um, 
Sorry about that. Uh, I did go back to the, um, uh, you might say, the rational and reread a lot of what Tom Wright said, and it was hugely helpful. Mm. So I guess I would say, you know, if the existential is flagging a little bit, sure up the rational. Mm. Uh, if the rational doesn't take you all the way there, it can't. Right. Take up the ex- existential. But I, I really do want to say, by the way, I want to say, um, and I have done this, I've had people say to me that uh, I, I've walked away from Christianity because I had this very, I had the, these, the, the, you know, I was going to this church and I found out that the, that the, uh, uh, the pastor who I really looked up to was having an affair and was a total hypocrite and was abusive. And I just walked away mm-hmm. and I said, look, I don't want to be, I, you know, I have to be careful here. As long as if, if the person himself or herself was a victim of abuse, then I wouldn't say yeah. this, but if the person was just disillusioned. I would say, okay, let me ask you a question. Um, does that person's adultery mean that Jesus Christ couldn't have been raised from the dead? Mm. And they'll say, well, no. I said, no, of course not. I mean, in other words, it's, it's, it's a non sequitur to say, well, because my pastor was a hypocrite, Jesus couldn't have been raised from the dead. The reasons for Jesus being raised from the dead are not ultimately, you know, the, uh, the quality of life of every one of his followers. And I said, I said you, you really do have to go and ask yourself the question, why was I a Christian? Or why did I go to that church? Yeah. Did, I said, did you do the, the hard work of thinking these things out? Or were you just taken up with the social, you know, the social community and that sort of thing? Let me just say something that Kathy and I have talked to each other about in the last year. If Jesus Christ was actually raised from the dead, if he really got up, walked out, was seen by hundreds of people, talked to them, if he was raised from the dead, then you know what? Everything's going to be all right. Mm. Whatever you're worried about right now, whatever you're afraid of, everything is actually going to be okay. Mm. Uh, because, because you got to remember, we're not just talking about resurrected people. Jesus Christ is, and this is where Christianity is unique. We're talking about a resurrected world, meaning other, uh, there's plenty of other religions that talk about a future afterlife, which is a non-material world. In other words, you get a consolation for the world we've lost. Mm -hmm. Christianity says it's not just your bodies are being resurrected, but the the world is actually going to be a material world that's cleansed from all evil and suffering and uh, and sin. And if Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, then the whole world is going to be, in a sense, resurrected, mm. and everything is going to be okay. Mm. Everything. You don't even you don't know how. I don't know how, but it will be. So, uh, and you know what? Actually, it would, right now I couldn't possibly be convinced that Jesus was not raised from the mm. dead, either intellectually or existentially so whenever i'm and by the way but kathy and i listen we cry we, had, we, we cried a lot last mm. night sometimes the reality of the shortness of what we have left here just overwhelms us and we were just weeping together and and crying and then you say if jesus christ was raised from the dead it is going to be okay and then you can wipe your tears but you don't stop mm. crying uh it's like salt in the wound that keeps the wound from going bad mm. uh that keeps the wound from getting infected but it doesn't mean that until the end of, you know, until we actually meet Jesus Christ, we, we still have our wounds. So they aren't going to be healed. But they'll be healed by his. So I think I still could, yeah, I would still go back to if Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and he was, you're going to be okay. Hmm. 
Well, that's a, that's a good word on which to end. Uh, the book is called Hope in Times of Fear by Tim Keller. And I don't want to sound like a Pentecostal TV evangelist, but um, I think despite the fact that your uh, book and article deal a lot with mortality, I think you're going to be with us for many years uh, by God's good kindness, and we need that. Uh, I'm really thankful for you, Tim, and for the way that God uh, uses you in my life. So that was a couple of conversations with Tim Keller. One of the things that I was struck by over the past uh, several days since his death is that someone, and I can't even remember who it was, who said, you know, there is no difference between public Tim Keller and private Tim Keller. What you saw is what you got. And I chuckled because I said, that's kind of true. The, the part that's not true is that there was a lot going on with Tim Keller. He was paying attention to things that maybe most people might not assume he was paying attention to. One of the last things that he said was to talk to me about a more struggling, smaller ministry out there in the world. And he said, these are great guys. He said, they're not fundraisers. And they shouldn't be fundraisers because if they were gifted to do that, they wouldn't be gifted to do what they do. Just just watch out for them. Think of any way that you can help them and help them. So he was, he was paying attention to things that you might not have seen publicly. But in terms of his character and in terms of his personality, uh, I mean, I was once with him when someone attacked kind of brutally him and me <laughs> critiquing us uh, theologically really, really harshly. And I could feel myself starting to get, you know, I'm calm on the outside, but I started to get sort of my adrenaline going up. And I looked at Tim. I see Tim's one eyebrow go up at one point, little smile show up on his face. And at one point, he literally shrugged, literally shrugged, and then turned around and said uh, some words that were not defending him or me, but caring for that person. And that was the public Tim Keller. That was the private Tim Keller. And in our little group of uh, our book club, Maria says, this is not a book club. This is a prayer group. You all have books as an excuse, but you're the group of old men at the Hardee's down the street uh, in our hometown who are praying for each other and teasing each other and holding each other accountable and making it through life. And I think that's right. And I think that's what's so great about it. I'm going to miss him there and in between those gatherings on Wednesday nights. As one person in our book club said, I think Tim has probably already assembled a new book club with C.S. Lewis, and Herman Bavink, and Abraham Kuyper, Gerhardus Voss, and who knows uh, who else. That's probably true. We're going to miss Tim Keller. I'm going to miss Tim Keller. But let's remember what he taught us. This is the Russell Moore Show. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producers, Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cosper. Host, Russell Moore. Producer, Ashley Hales. 
editor, Matt Stevens, mix engineer, Dan Phelps, associate producers, Abby Perry and Azaray Phelps, social media, Kate Lucky, video producer, John Rowland, CT administration, Christine Kolb. <laughs>